My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number 11 of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring my conversation with Dr. Balder Onerheim, who has a PhD in the neuroscience of creativity and is the developer of a neurosimulation device called Plato Work. Every time you use neurostimulation, you increase the effects of whatever task you're doing while you have them. And that might be a microscopic change, but what it does, it's accelerating the learning you have. So, you know, the, the basic idea of neuroplasticity is every time you do a task, it becomes easier for you to do the task again. That's sort of the, the, the basis of how the brain is learning. And if you then apply neurostimulation, then that effect gets a little stronger. So it's basically increasing the neuroplasticity and it's making our whatever learning we have happening a little faster. The idea or the concept of combining the type of work that I've been doing, so you know, cognitive flexibility training and cognitive methods training with psychedelics experiences, I would say maybe not so much, you know, combining them with a peak experience, but combining them with, you know, uh, an afterglow or microdosing. So you balance the amount of uh, cognitive flexibility with learning. I think that's a super fascinating uh, trajectory. The narrative around creativity is drastically changing. Thought leaders, experts from a wide range of fields, and CEOs from the world's top companies are now calling creative thinking and creative problem solving the number one most important skill set, or rather mindset, that you can learn to cultivate for thriving in the 21st century. So if you're still living in the old paradigm that creativity is just for painters, musicians, or dancers, I highly recommend tuning into the new narrative around creativity and consider the importance of learning to develop these crucial cognitive capacities so that we can think bigger about the challenges we face both individually and collectively. As Einstein said, we can't solve our problems at the same level of thinking that created them. And I truly believe it is in all of our highest interest to learn and explore the tools we can draw upon to enhance our capacity to think more creatively, whether that's technological tools like neurostimulation, biotechnologies like plant medicines and psychedelics and microdosing, or cognitive tools that you can learn and practice or as we'll talk about in this conversation, the way we can consciously explore the combination of multiple tools that all share similar neurological underpinnings that specifically support and enhance neuroplasticity. And so Balder is the founder of a company called Plato Science, and they sent me their neurostimulation device called Plato Work. And of course, Balder gets into some of the science behind neurostimulation in this episode. And I'll also share some of my own experience after playing with it for a few months now and how I'm combining it within my specific microdosing framework and morning practice to leverage flow states. And as some of you know, I'm in graduate school right now. I'm getting a master's in science in a program called Creativity Studies and Change Leadership. And I'm really interested in the overlap and intersection between creative thinking and creative problem solving with psychedelics. 
And so when I reached out to Balder after finding him through a paper he wrote about the neuroscience of creativity, and I watched his TEDx talk, as it turns out, he's also super interested in this topic of psychedelics and creativity, and he definitely has his eye on following what's unfolding in the psychedelic space. And this is why we just get along so great, and it's been such a joy getting to know him and to talk about all the fun things, which you'll hear in this conversation. And so all the links mentioned in this conversation are going to be included in the show notes, including that paper I just referenced, Baldur's TEDx talk, as well as a free PDF guide that outlines eight days towards enhancing creative thinking. And he also shares a few specific tools and practices in this conversation that you can immediately implement, especially if you're working with teams to increase the likelihood you'll land on novel solutions to the challenges you face. If you're interested in purchasing their neurostimulation device, I'll include a link to their website in the show notes, and you can use coupon code LAURADAWN, L-A-U-R-A-D-A-W-N, all one word, all lowercase, to receive a discount. Also, if you haven't yet received my free eight-day microdosing course or playlists for psychedelic journeys and beyond, you can also swipe those on my website at livefreelaurad.com. I'll be featuring a song called Let It Be Alive at the end of this episode. I just love incorporating inspirational music into my microdosing morning ritual practice. And this song is definitely a current fave. And it's by Paul Isaac, Tubby Love, and Anna Sorrento. Okay, without any further ado, here is my fascinating conversation with Dr. Balder Onarheim. I've been so looking forward to this conversation with you because it's a little different than what I've done in the past on the podcast. And we both share a passion for this complex and nuanced topic of creativity, creative problem solving, creative thinking, which is how I found you online because I'm fascinated in the neuroscience of creativity. And this just so happens to be what you have your PhD in, which I find so interesting. So I'd like to invite you to make a case for why this topic of creativity and creative thinking is so applicable to everyone, why it's so important for us to be talking about and educating about, especially for leaders and entrepreneurs and the change makers of our time. Yeah, absolutely. So um, thanks so much for having me. And I'm a big fan and follower of your work. So I'm very happy to, uh, to be here. And I, I definitely think that creativity as a concept has sort of a bit of a funny um, reputation because a lot of people think of creativity as being quite fluffy, quite childish, quite, you know, hippie, intangible. But in reality, uh, I see and a lot of other academic scientists see creativity as probably one of the more uh, fundamental human cognitive skills. So what sets us apart from a lot of the other animals, uh, to me, is our ability to come up with new inventions, new solutions, new ways of tackling problems. And, you know, just the fact that uh, you're in Hawaii, I'm in Australia, and we are recording this conversation is the result of 10,000 of years of human creativity. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, we're here because of that. And... Uh, to me, creativity is not about the art. It's not about marketing and, and fun and giggles and painting. It's very specifically a cognitive skill. 
It's the brain's ability to create something that your brain has not done or seen before. And that to me is at the, you know, it's at the base of everything is at the base of defining yourself is at the base of learning. It's uh, at the base of any type of novel work. If you're, you know, writing a text, even if you're writing an important email, if you're a lawyer in a, a lawsuit, making the final statement, you know, all these things are about how good are you? at creating something new, something novel, mm -hmm. which fulfills whatever context of purpose you're in. So mm -hmm. I think I call it the creativity battle, which is about, you know, uh, making it more commonly known that creativity is a cognitive skill that everyone needs. And it's at the core of humanity. It's not just some, yeah, funny arts topic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what inspired you to pursue a PhD in the neuroscience of creativity? Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny because I, so my uh, first education was actually from the Norwegian army. And then I went on and did a master degree in medical equipment design. And when I started working as an engineer, I, I was very intrigued by working with the experts in the field because I think we all know the person who would be invited into a meeting if you're stuck and then this person comes in you explain the problem and he or she says oh try x y and z and and look at this and the person leaves and you sort of sit back and think why did we not think about that hmm. and in the company I used to work for back then we had a couple of those you know, creative geniuses. And I was so fascinated by that cognitive skill of theirs. So um, my PhD actually started trying to see how well do we understand what that skill really is and also how can we uh, train or improve that skill. Uh, and to me, if you don't understand it, it's very hard to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. So it's really about understanding what it is and use that knowledge to improve it. Mm -hmm. What was the the name of the article you wrote in a, in the journal? I, and that's how, I think that's initially how I found you. And it basically, the premise was that if you teach people the underlying neurological mechanisms of creative thinking, that that actually helps support creative thinking. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, I'm pretty sure it's called applying the, uh, the neuroscience of creativity for creativity training. I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure we have creativity at least twice in the title and it's in the frontiers of human neuroscience, which is a very good, um, very modern um, journal that does a lot of very interesting groundbreaking stuff. So uh, everyone should, everyone with an interest in the field should keep an eye on that journal. And as you said, our hypothesis was, uh, so I've been working a lot with a neurobiologist and our sort of core theory for a lot of our creativity training programs and training activities is that the better you understand creativity, especially from a neurological perspective, the better you are able to improve your own creativity. And to me, uh, I normally use the metaphor of uh, muscles. So if you want to be strong and fit, 
if you know nothing about how your body works, how your muscles build, how to eat, you know, then it's really hard to be fit. Mm-hmm. But if you start by learning and understanding your body, the processes, your muscles, then becoming fit is much easier. And it is the same to me for the brain. And it doesn't only go with creativity, but if you are interested in improving a skill, if that's your language or mathematics or your creativity, then to me, you first have to understand what it is and then you can train it. Mm-hmm. So in this article, we basically compared two group uh, of students. I'm pretty sure we have had 120 students in total, so two times 60. And one group got traditional creativity training and the other got neurological-based training. So it was very focused on the students understanding the neurological underpinnings of being creative. And we saw a very significant difference after the course in uh, the measured creativity of the students in the neuroscience group compared to the non-neuroscience group. Wow. Can we get into a little bit of what are some of the neurological underpinnings of creativity? Yes, absolutely. Oh, it's the, it's my favorite topic. I, uh, you have to stop me at some point. but <laughs> No, go uh, for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so in, in essence our brain is trying to save energy. Its sort of sole task is not to overconsume energy. So what our brain does, it's uh, creating a lot of workarounds and creating a lot of simplifications to save energy. And that's in most instances, the opposite of being creative. So if you don't sort of manipulate your brain or if you don't do any interventions your brain is super lazy and it will go with what it knows so by that understanding your brain is uh, trying to be in an uncreative state so the core of the neuroscience of creativity is actually to understand the key mechanisms that your brain does to save energy because you then have to trick them. So you have to fool the natural way your brain works. So uh, a very simple example is our brain works by associations. So if I say apple, then your brain activates any information it has that is closely related to apple. Which I think immediately Mm. almond butter. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. But that's the thing, because we all have, you know, different type of associations, but most of them will be quite similar. And Apple, you know, will trigger certain part of your network Mm -hmm. and your brain will sort of exclude everything else because that's potentially not relevant. Mm -hmm. And then only give you access to what your brain has reasons to believe is relevant for you. But that's actually the uncreative things. Mm -hmm. So if I say you know, in a brainstorming session, if I say an idea out loud, then everyone else's associative networks will sort of zoom in and focus on whatever they have, which is very close to the idea I just have. Mm -hmm. So by basically talking to each other, we lock down the amount of information your brain has available. Mm -hmm. So one very simple method 
for breaking out of that is to do silent brainstorming. So instead of brainstorm by talking together, you mm -hmm. do iterations between, you know, talking for two minutes, then silence individual brainstorming for two minutes, and then you talk, so you do back and forth because then you actually utilize the effect that the brain, if it's left to itself, you can actually wander quite far. Mm -hmm. But if you talk to each other, you keep locking each other's brains down. Mm -hmm. So that's just one example of these, you know, lazy mechanisms that our brain has and which, you know, makes us function the rest of the time. So the reason why you understand most of what I'm saying is mm -hmm. because the words I use activate the right um, associations in your brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes um, in the the graduate, I mean, this is, you know, that I'm in graduate school studying creativity mm -hmm. studies and change leadership. And sometimes uh, in the facilitation process, we use associations to try to come up with new ideas. Like if we're in a creative problem solving process, will the facilitator will bring in like a very different kind of image that's very unrelated and to try to use leverage this this natural mechanism of association in a way that helps us think more outside the box. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a very good method. Um, I actually use Wikipedia. Uh, Wikipedia has a random um, article button. So oh. if I'm stuck with something, I'll go on Wikipedia, hit the random article button, and then I get a piece of information which has nothing to do with what I'm actually working on. Mm -hmm. And then I read that article or skim it and try to sort of force my... Uh, brain to connect whatever I'm working on mm -hmm. to the material in the article. Mm -hmm. Because the problem with uh, uh, very often with inspiration, inspiration is you choose the type of inspiration you think will help you in the project or mm -hmm. in the process. And very often that's just enforcing whatever close associations you have. Mm -hmm. So having someone else pick it, as you said, or, or to do use basically a random generator mm -hmm. would um, then open up for unexpected things that you as the creative actually wouldn't think of yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's so interesting to also just highlight that most people who are adults in the workforce today were all products of an industrialized education system that focused on convergent over divergent thinking. And so we've been conditioned to always look for the one solution. Um, maybe we can just define convergent versus divergent thinking and a couple of tools, cognitive tools to help people engage in more divergent thinking and why that's even important, uh, why that's even an important skill set to have or mindset to have. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's uh, actually a very troublesome topic because, as you say, um, all adults more or less are the result of a type of education which goes back to the 1800s where the whole purpose of education was to make sure that the people wouldn't revolt you know mm -hmm. that's the, the the conceptual starting point for our current teaching system mm -hmm. is keeping people from rioting you know and and that i believe has given a certain way of designing education, which hasn't changed really. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're definitely right in that we uh, teach students and um, give good grades for a certain type of thinking, which is definitely not novel. Mm -hmm. There are even studies showing that um, 
teachers dislike creative students because they ask more questions and they are, you know, the difficult people mm-hmm. are the ones that would, for instance, uh, find loopholes in your rules. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I've been a teacher for a lot of years myself and, and I, I've sometimes really had to control myself for not shutting down people who are actually just being really creative. And it, if you have 60 students and you're, you know, have too little time, then mm-hmm. a creative student can be quite uh, uh, disturbing for your teaching. Mm-hmm. While in reality, that's actually the type of skill that you should foster. Mm-hmm. And I hope that we'll see more of a shift towards there being a better balance between divergent and convergent thinking skills. Um, and while the two concepts, convergent and divergent, are a bit outdated, I guess, because our, our brains do both at the same time all the time. But you know, conceptually, divergent thinking is about generating new alternatives. Convergent is about filtering and removing alternatives. So it's basically coming up with ideas and filtering ideas. That's the sort of open and close, open and close. And our brain does this simultaneously and, and does constantly. It's actually me formulating a sentence. Most of the words I choose, uh, this is my not my first language, obviously. So uh, a lot of the words will actually be the result of a microscopic uh, divergent convergent process where I, I, you know, come up with a couple of potential words I could use and then I pick them. And that happens quickly enough that the sentence will still flow. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, if you talk about convergent, divergent uh, teaching, mm-hmm. there are very few examples in any modern school system where you actually have courses, classes uh, that are focused on teaching divergent thinking. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think part of the problem to me with that is the only classes where you normally allow students to do divergent thinking is arts classes. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think that just enforces the idea that creativity equals arts, which it doesn't. So I think having, you know, um, whichever topic you teach, you should have a divergent thinking module. Mm-hmm. So uh, even in mathematics, and it's, um, I'm a big fan of a schooling system called uh, uh, the Steiner Schools. I think it's called the Waldorf Schools in the US, uh, mm-hmm. which was founded by the German philosopher Rudolf Steiner back in the 30s. I went to that school system myself in Europe. And uh, in uh, learning mathematics in the Steiner School system, uh, you start by asking the students, what is five? So you wouldn't say, what is two plus three? You say, what is five? And then the students can come up with different alternatives that would result in five. And I think that's such a beautiful, tiny, simple example of how you can actually teach the classical Mm -hmm. non-creative topics Mm -hmm. in a creative way. And it also allows students to uh, perform on their level so a clever, a clever student will say it's the root of 25, um, while you know, another student might say it's uh, 4 plus 1. Mm-hmm. 
even just allowing people to recognize that there are cognitive tools that we can reach for. We're going to get to technological tools in a moment, but just real cognitive practices that we can implement in our daily lives. And why this is so important for us is because it allows us to think differently. And for most people listening who aren't in school, what are some practices that people can implement? So I would say there are two different approaches and I'll touch on both. Um, I'm sure you can link to my TED talk where I talk mm -hmm. more about three very specific tools, but there are two directions. One of them is uh, continuous cognitive training, meaning that you do small things all the time to make your brain more cognitively flexible. And uh, that's basically about trying to break patterns. So if that's, you know, putting on the, the other shoe first, or if it's cutting your nails on the other hand first, if it's brushing your teeth, you know, so it's all these tiny things. It's if you bike to work or walk, walk to the subway, can you take a different route? You know, so it's any tiny intervention you can make in your life, if that's private life, work life, that just uh, breaks a little habit and not you know, than just forming a new habit, but trying to keep your mind open because that uh, trains your brain's flexibility and it makes it less rigid, mm -hmm. which means that it's easier for your brain to accept when you are trying to force it to be creative. Mm -hmm. The other part is using specific methods. So I mentioned the uh, Wikipedia random article one. You, you mentioned the one that your uh, teacher would use. And Uh, there are books, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of them, but I would say uh, randomness, so allowing for randomness, it's one very important part. Another one is the uh, silence. So when you do uh, especially team-based creative work, if you even, and when I say creative work, I mean anything. So <laughs> if you're a lawyer or a leader or working on a new company strategy, to accept the fact that working uh, out loud, talking out loud with the other people involved in the process is not necessarily the most effective way. Mm. So these shifts between you know, working individually and working as a team and shifting back and forth is a very effective intervention. Mm -hmm. uh, another one that I've been using a lot with complex problem solving Uh, is something we call a constraint removal. And it's actually, it's a very funny uh, exercise as well. So if you are faced with a complex problem and you struggle to find good solutions to it, you uh, analyze the problem a bit and you try to figure out what is the most sort of uh, limiting rule So, for instance, it could be time or it could be cost or it could be staffing. So you have, you know, there are always some itchy part of the problem. Where you think, ah, if, if we just could not have that rule, then it would be easy. And then uh, you remove that rule for a little while. So you say, okay, for the next three hours, let's work as if our problem was a little simple. And then you work on the problem for you know, the designated time. And afterwards, when you have all these new ideas that you wouldn't have thought of, you reintroduce 
the role that you removed, and then you try to adopt your potential solutions to fit the problem. And what you'll find is a lot of the solutions that you came up with still works. You just might have to tweak them a little bit, but they would still be viable solutions. Mm -hmm. But most of them, you would never have come up with them if you were trying to tackle the whole problem at once. So that's, but again, it's, you know, there's a great book called Creative Methods or Creativity Methods, which basically has 100 different um, small exercises, tools like, like this. Um, in my TED talk, I talk about sleep, which is another one that I really like mm. using, using sleep as a method, mm. um, meditation, daydreaming, anything, any type of personal, uh, practice you can do to make your brain sort mm. of, um, diverge from whatever you're working on. If mm -hmm. that's even like a three minute micro meditation, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it's another very effective method that Mm -hmm. uh, I also use a lot. Mm, sometimes I'll encourage people to just pick an object and think about brainstorm a list of all of the different ways that 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 object can be used. I think that's used in quite a lot of creativity studies and research, like the brick. You know, how many different ways can you yes. use a brick? And then um, one of the things I'm learning a lot about is is just this the simplicity of reminding people to defer judgment. You know, that it's so easy to be hypercritical and to immediately say, oh, well, that's not a good idea. But even just training the mind to defer judgment and to, you know, go past the sort of low hanging fruit and and go yep. further and yes. see what wants to come past that. Um, those are yeah. those are great, great ways as well. Definitely. We uh, we've been using a method a lot called negative brainstorming mm. or reverse brainstorming, where you quite early in the process, you would flip the problem around. So you basically, instead of coming up with good solutions, you try to come up with bad solutions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's, of course, fun. And it uh, really helps to uh, sort of train people in not being afraid of saying something silly mm -hmm. and not being afraid of saying something that, that might be a bad idea. Because mm -hmm. that's a lot of creative processes are hindered by different type of hierarchies. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the uh, if I say this out loud, how will that be for my manager and my colleague? You know, mm -hmm. and that, that might limit people. So doing a bit of a negative brainstorming or a bad idea session mm -hmm. is normally a good way for everyone to, to remember that having a bad idea might actually eventually lead to a grand idea. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just part of the process and, and saying something stupid is sometimes actually very important. Yeah. And that's the, that's the, the complex nuance that I really appreciate, especially, you know, when it comes to facilitating complex problem solving, that it's so much more than cognitive. It's emotional. People's egos are involved. People are, are, are facing their own fears of, you know, sharing or give, putting out a bad idea or someone making a comment about someone else's idea. So it's actually like facilitating a whole group flow process and managing relationships and egos and yes. all the things it's, it's actually really really it's so fascinating and so complex it's so fascinating and so complex i used to teach a course um facilitation of co-creation at the technical university in denmark and you know we would have about 100 students and training them to become facilitators and i think one of the things that i took away from that course myself was just 
it's so personality based. Mm-hmm. It's probably one of the most sort of uh, personal skills based because it's it's more than being a couple's therapy, you know, mm-hmm. a therapist. That's easy compared to <laughs> making a group of eight professionals mm-hmm. work well together in a creative process. That's magic. And some people just have that. Some people just walk into a room and they make it happen. For other people, they can do it for years and years and never really get good at it. So mm-hmm. it's it's very fascinating and very, very tricky and extremely complicated. Mm-hmm. So speaking of personality, um, I mean, of course, you know that I'm so interested in the overlap between psychedelics and creative thinking, creativity. Now research shows that even one psilocybin journey can change someone's personality trait of openness, which is directly correlated to creative problem solving and creative thinking. Have you been reading into that? I mean, what's your, do you have any curiosity around the overlap between creative thinking and psychedelics and you don't have to share any personal experiences if you don't want to, but I'm just, I'm, I'm just curious and we could <laughs> yeah, leave this in or not, but I, I just wanted to ask you. Yeah, no, I, I, I find it absurdly fascinating. And I think it's, to me, it's really the frontier of a lot of fields, obviously. Uh, that's also therapy, um, depression treatment, anxiety treatments, but on the healthy side, I think, the use of psychedelics is uh, probably one of the most underestimated uh, methods. And there are a lot of very interesting things happening now, as we've been speaking about before, around the world, where there are movements to remove some of the super negative um, connotations from the 70s and 80s uh, from the LSD uh, movement and rather you know, focus on the therapeutical aspects mm-hmm. and uh, I do have personal experience I also have a lot of secondhand experience uh, with people I know who are you know very professional in using psychedelics for a number of purposes and for creativity openness to experience uh, seeing new solutions I think anyone who have ever been even you know trying microdosing would know how much, even a small amount of psychedelic can open up to your acceptance mm-hmm. for novelty. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you might see things, you might know they're not there, but you accept them and you sort of say, I, I know that object is not moving from a rational perspective, but I, I see that it's moving and I accept that there is sort of a um, discrepancy between my technical knowledge and my experience and I accept that and I'm fine with it. And I think that's a very healthy, very sort of positive uh, practice of your cognitive flexibility, as I spoke about earlier, to uh, learn that things not seeming right or things seemingly being incorrect is not a negative thing. It's, Mm -hmm. um, you know, all these things around us are just, uh, construct that we have made i have decided that i'm talking to you now that's my brain um is in that hallucination of some type right now and that is a a chosen reality that i can also manipulate and knowing that Mm -hmm. i think has a a huge impact on a lot of things but also your creativity definitely Mm. 
And in your own experience, would you say that you were able to have some level of, of meta awareness working with these substances where you were like, oh, my my mind is more fluid right now, either, you know, post experience. Did you did you directly notice more windows of mental flexibility? Yeah, definitely. I think to me, sort of any type of psychedelic experience, again, even, you know, a tiny tiny disruption and all the way to full out uh, trip, I would say is mostly an experience of, um, of novelty. It's, it's your brain experiencing things that are unknown and to learn to accept them. And I think the whole notion of bad trips or having negative experiences comes from not being able to let that go. So, you know, a good trip, you accept, that things are different. You accept that things look, feel uh, different. You accept the other type of thoughts and, and inspirations you might get. Yeah, so to me, in terms of the cognitive flexibility, openness to experience, I would say that's the essence of psychedelic. Mm-hmm. That, that's what it does to you. Is it's, it forces your brain to, uh, to have experiences that are outside of what your brain would normally do and, and like to do. And sort of, again, this, as we spoke about in the beginning, this very confined energy saving mode that our brain is on 99.9% of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the, from a more scientific, I, I'm definitely reading up and following all of, all of the current development um, in the field. And I would say one of the, very interesting things. I can't remember if we have spoken about, about this before, but the uh, in classical neurological studies of creativity, the default network has always been sort of the holy grail and it's always been, you know, um, an understanding of an increase in default network activity. So I'm sure all your listeners are familiar with this, but I'll repeat it just for the sake of it. So uh, in our brain, it's a region which is sort of always on, and it's called the default network, which is most of the back of our head. And uh, that's the regions where a lot of subconscious processing are happening. It's where our dreams take place. And in classical creativity uh, theory, uh, high creative performers will have an increased activity. So a lot of people, when they are concentrating on the task, they will deactivate the default network, while people who have high scores on creativity tests, they do the opposite. So when mm-hmm. you sit down and concentrate on a task, mm-hmm. instead of turning down the background noise in your default network, you turn it up, mm-hmm. which fits well with the idea that you know your associations... Um, are the control mechanism for your creativity. And by having more activity in the default network, your brain has more material to work with. It has more remote associations. Uh, It's funny that we say to have something in the back of your head Mm -hmm. or your back of your mind, because it's literally where it is. Mm -hmm. But in psychedelica, it's actually the opposite. So Mm -hmm. your default network is deactivated. Mm -hmm. It's in, in... ketamine is more or less turned off so um and still there is this strong relationship with creativity so you know i what i hope that will become 
uh, or wiser at is, is it actually the regulation of the default network, which is the creative skill? So it's not about it being uh, more activated or less activated. It's actually about the control of default mode activation, which is creativity, meaning that you, if you're a professional creative, then you will regulate or deregulate your default network in accordance with the task. So you can reach, you know, more uh, uh, exploding type uh, overactivity in the default network, but you can also turn it down. So um, as Michael Pollan, I think, refers to it as sort of turning off the conductor for mm -hmm. your symphony. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, I, I find it very interesting that those two theories are more or less complete opposites. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. And during the psychedelic experience, it's almost like an opening of the reduction valve. It influences the thalamus. So we're exposed to more data. We're able to process more data. Yeah, it, it is. It's interesting that juxtaposition. And actually, I go way deeper into this specific conversation with Manesh Gurn in episode five. He's a psychedelic neuroscientist, and he's also very interested in creativity. And he's been looking at these correlations and patterns as well. And this is really what I want to be doing with the the next retreats. You know, I've been running retreats for about 10 years now. And after post-COVID time, we'll see what, when and what that actually looks like. But I really want to leverage these experiences to work with teams specifically and then leverage those windows of mental flexibility post-experience and teaching people these creative cognitive tools to think bigger. And um, I'm really excited about where that's where that's going and putting all the content together for that because it's so interesting. I just think it's so untapped. This conversation is barely yes. being discussed in, in the psychedelic space. And I'm very passionate about holding space for this conversation and really being at the forefront of, of this topic. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, the, the idea or the concept of combining the type of work that I've been doing, so, you know, cognitive training, both um, cognitive flexibility training and cognitive methods training with um, psychedelic experiences, I would say maybe not so much, you know, combining them with, a peak experience, but combining them with, you know, uh, an afterglow or mm -hmm. um, microdosing. So you, you sort of uh, balance the amount of uh, cognitive flexibility with learning. Mm -hmm. I think that's a super fascinating uh, trajectory. And just remember to mention it that I, uh, we have an ebook uh, through my company, Plato Science, about, I think it's called Eight Days to Creativity, where we sort of have um, do this eight days in a row to improve your creativity. And um, I'm, I'll make sure that it becomes available to your listener. Wonderful. Listeners, um, because um, for anyone dabbling a bit in, in psychedelic, especially in microdosing, I think mm -hmm. to do some microdosing and follow those eight days, I think that that yeah. would be a very interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. Totally. I'm going to, yeah. I'm definitely going to include that in the show notes. And I'm actually in the middle of creating a 30 day microdosing program that's focused on uh, teaching people cognitive tools 
during the microdosing, um, which brings me into flow states, which is like one of my yes. favorite topics ever. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I just love getting to know you and all the things that you're working on. And I'm so happy to have received this transcranial stimulation device, Plato Works. Uh, maybe before we get into flow states, I'd love for you to just talk about, you know, how did you get into this? How did, I mean, now that I know you also have a background in engineering, it makes a little more sense. Um, but it's really amazing. And, and I want to know about some of the research that you, you've been doing with this, with this device and what's inspired you to launch this company and this, this product that I've had the privilege to experiment with that I love yeah. really. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. That's of course the most important thing. I, so as I said, uh, I started this journey of training people's creativity together with a neurobiologist and what we found in our studies was that yes, cognitive training has an effect. It works and it has a positive effect. The problem is retention. So uh, everyone who have ever tried to do any type of um, behavioral change for themselves, if that's you know starting to run, starting mm -hmm. to read more, whatever that you know uh, New Year's uh, wish is. Uh, know how hard it is to retain new habits. Mm -hmm. And we definitely saw that in our own work that the brain's laziness, the brain's uncreativeness is such a strong thing. And we all have, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of training your brain to be uncreative, convergent mm -hmm. training. And what we wanted to do was to try to use technology to both improve the effect of the learning, but also to improve the retention. So to make sure that people actually manage to maintain whatever positive habits that a course like the program we've been developing uh, could induce. Mm -hmm. And we looked at a lot of different technologies and there are a lot of cool technologies out there for uh, in influencing our body, I would probably say, brain and body. And our choice fell on a technology called TDCS. So that's transcranial direct current stimulation, which is uh, in the family of transcranial stimulation, which in essence, you send weak electrical currents through the brain. That's, that's sort of the, the essence. And of course, our brain works in a combination of chemicals and electrical signals. And humans have, you know, almost 50,000 years of experience of uh, messing with the chemicals in the brain uh, through smoking uh, rhythms, you know, all these things we've done uh, to, uh, to influence the chemical system in our brain. And about 3,000 years ago, um, humans started using electricity. So it's actually quite fascinating. The Egyptians would use um, torpedo fish Wow. to treat migraines. Hmm. So for people who had severe migraines, they would basically sort of give you a torpedo fish on your head that will give you a discharge, which equals what we today would call sort of a full electroshock. Hmm. So already 3,000 years ago, humans understood that the, this electrical power that the, the fish and the eels have is the same as happens in here, which I find very fascinating. And... But since those 3,000 years ago, we've, we've gotten way more specific. And uh, today, 
most transcranial stimulation methods uses very weak currents, very controlled currents. And the effect those currents have on the brain is um, not strong enough to force an effect. So they can't make your brain do anything. But what they do is they modulate the natural electrical activity in the brain. So they make it easier or harder for the brain to work in a given manner. So previously we spoke about the activation and deactivation of the default network, the back of the head. And using uh, TDCS, the technology we use, you can uh, selectively make it easier or harder to have activation in the default network. And at the same time, making it easier or harder to have frontal activity. And that's exactly what we do in our product Plato work is uh, manipulating the potential electrical activity in three main networks of the brain. So the left and right frontal lobe and the default uh, mode network. And by balancing the activity in those three areas, you can uh, sort of make certain cognitive uh, processes and states easier or harder. And what Morton, the neurobiologist, and I wanted to do was, you know, this technology has been around for more than 25 years. It's been used by the military. It's been used in a lot of research labs uh, for a lot of sketchy uh, purposes as well. And what we wanted to do was to de democratize it. So to say the technology is completely proven, it's safe. We know what it does and we know it cannot be hurtful in sort of done in the right way. So why shouldn't everyone have access to it? Mm -hmm. So that was our starting point. And then <laughs> uh, hardware startups is, uh, is very hard, I must admit. So it took us five years mm -hmm. to, to have a, a solid product in, in the market. But now we do, and we're launching a second product now in April uh, for a different purpose. That's for eSports, so more for um, yeah, a very specific aim. While Play to Work, our current product is for any type of knowledge work. So uh, mm -hmm. you mentioned float states, but mm -hmm. also uh, things like learning. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a mode in the headset called Rethink. I wanted to ask you about that, actually, yeah. and what the difference between the Create and Rethink. And just for people listening, this, this headset comes with an app and there's four main settings, Create, Rethink, Learn, and Concentrate. And I noticed that, for example, Concentrate, it, will, it shows that there's more of an electrical current from the back to the front left, which is yeah. different than the Create or the Rethink. And so I'm curious to ask you about that. And I'm also curious about like what the difference is specifically between the Create one and the rethink yeah yeah so um thanks for mentioning all four and i guess the, the concentrate and the learn makes a lot of sense um the create and rethink it's it's really funny because you know what we've done with the headset is taken years and years of research our own and others and try to simplify the messaging mm -hmm. because uh, there are a lot of people out there who would do uh, DIY brain stimulation, mm -hmm. but that requires a lot of knowledge. So what we've tried to do is to make it yeah, uh, easier and not requiring too much pre, uh, prerequisites, too many prerequisites. And uh, the create and rethink, I, I, I find a very good example of, of that being tricky sometimes because 
uh, when you create, it's normally uh, in our sort of understanding of it, it's you build something more or less from scratch. So mm-hmm. you sit down, let's say that you work on the theme for a book or you're um, you know, starting a process of designing your 30-day course, uh, microdosing program, and you basically have a lot of building blocks and you're, you're starting to put them together and the process is focused on creating something novel. While rethink is more in the situations where you're stuck. So mm-hmm. you you sort of, after you've been working on your 30-day course, you might run into some problems. You might sort of feel, I keep getting back to the same, you know, I'm sort of stuck in a creative loop here and I feel that it's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Then what the rethink program is, it it's turning down the sort of systematic structuring uh Part. Mm-hmm. So that's the front left. Mm-hmm. And then it boosts your default network. So it's basically opening up for saying, forget about all the things that you already designed and thought about. And here's a bunch of inspiration you didn't ask for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the aim is to try to break out of that cycle. So you might think, oh, wait a minute, I can actually do something completely different mm-hmm. that wasn't in my original scope. Mm-hmm. And so is there, is there a a direction of current? Does that make a difference? Yes. So the, the um, sort of simplified way of understanding TDCS is uh, you send the current in through one area and you pick it back out. So you create a a circuit, electrical circuit Mm -hmm. through the brain. And in the area where the current enters, you have heightened potential. And where you take it back out, you have a lower potential. Hmm. So um, if we send the current in through the front left, then the front left will have a higher potential for activity. Mm -hmm. And if we pick it up from the default network, it will be harder for you to naturally activate the default network. Hmm. And that's actually the concentrate mode. Mm -hmm. I really like that mode, actually. I really like it. Ah, me too. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I really feel it. It puts me in like multiple hours of deep focus. That's so good. I'm very happy to hear that. That's to me, it's uh, sometimes it's almost scary how, because you, you know, the, the idea of a tunnel vision mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the result of, you know, boosting the potential for activity in the front left and uh, limiting any type of background noise because uh, a lot of times when working uh, focused, especially with tasks that just need to be done. Mm-hmm. So, you know, editing text, things like that. Mm-hmm. Proofreading is a great example. Um, your brain will start wondering and your default network will start thinking about dinner. It will start making to-do lists. It will start coming up with ideas for a book, you know, all these other things that are completely irrelevant for the task at hand. Mm-hmm. So in the concentrate mode, that's what we limit mm-hmm. the amount of background noise when you don't need it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are the differences between the left and the right prefrontal cortex? Ooh, uh, <laughs> like simplified. Everything and nothing. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, that's, it's a very good question. And um, they are both uh, involved in a lot of the same operations, but they normally have sort of slightly different type of tasks. Mm-hmm. 
So, for instance, um, in learning processes, uh, the left side will gather the knowledge and the right side will structure it. Hmm. So, you know, they're, they're always both involved whenever you do any type of uh, higher cognitive tasks, but they have most of the time two different uh, aspects of the job. And uh, as you know, and, and hopefully all your listeners, the whole left-right brain myth is completely bogus. Mm-hmm. It's our, mm-hmm. our brain is one system and it's not that our creativity is on one side and, and uh, logical in the other side at all. But mm-hmm. um, some of it comes from a bit from the f- uh, sort of division between tasks in the frontal lobe. And that's also, you know, our the difference between our create mode mm-hmm. and our learn mode, which are technical opposites, more or less, um, is the direction between the, the frontal lobes uh, on left, right, and right, left, depend on whether you uh, want to get new things in mm-hmm. or whether you want to use what you have to create new. That mm-hmm. actually is sort of the complete opposite direction of the curve. Interesting. And then what about timing? Are you recommending that people put on the head device while they're engaged in creative thinking, for example, or do you recommend every morning and then we could get into frequency, you know, or is this an everyday thing that you <laughs> recommend? I mean, I, I really have about a million questions for you. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so um, <laughs> it's uh, two, two separate topics. So the, in terms of when to use it, it's definitely something you use when you need it. Mm-hmm. So for me, uh, I've had long periods where I would have uh, just a routine for doing it at the same point. But um, for me, and also what we recommend to our users, is to do it when you need it. So I would normally you know, uh, start the task that I'm working on. And then when I s- sort of feel that I'm getting started, even if it's not a great you know, uh, we all know the feeling of sitting down with a task and you mm-hmm. feel your brain is just not there at all, mm-hmm. not helping you. Uh, that's when the product has the best sort of, the best potential is to help you to get into a state that you know you're, you know you can, but mm-hmm. it's hard to get there. Mm-hmm. So that's, to me, the best point is to use it during when, mm-hmm. the task. Yeah. So but for example, if, if I'm learning the guitar, would I want to put it on while I'm learning and hit the learn option and 30 minutes is a good time to, to practice the guitar? So actually having it on while I'm practicing? Yes. And it's, um, without mentioning names, there's uh, there are other products out there that would have different uh, framings for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a term that you might have heard, neuropriming, mm-hmm. which where the idea is you use brain stimulation before you actually need it. Mm -hmm. And uh, in our findings, and I would say generally in the field of uh, neurostimulation studies, that's not a very supported claim. It's the effect is definitely strongest while you use it. Mm -hmm. And then, yes, there is a tail effect. As you said, if you have a strong cognitive sensation, Mm -hmm. Uh, during stimulation like uh, you mentioned with concentrate Mm -hmm. then the tail effect can actually go on for hours i've Mm -hmm. had six hours of afterburn where you sort of still feel a heightened state of Mm -hmm. of cognition but all of this being said i also think it's very important to emphasize that the 
technology is a it's a neuromodulation technology so it can only support the natural activity so mm. i'm sure you've also tried uh, sitting down you're going to do something concrete you put the headset on you pick a mode and still it doesn't get you where you need to be and that's you know we don't sell a quick fix if anyone would ever offer you a quick fix it's normally not mm -hmm. the case so i think it's very important to say it's it can't do magic if your brain is not there or your brain doesn't want to do whatever you ask it to do then modulating it mm -hmm. will not sort of force it anywhere else so that brings me to the second part of the use and the usage pattern is every time you use neurostimulation, you increase the effects of whatever task you're doing while you have it on. Mm -hmm. And that might be a microscopic change, mm -hmm. but what it does, it's accelerating the learning you have. So, you know, the, the basic idea of neuroplasticity is every time you do a task, it becomes easier for you to do the task again. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the, the, the basis of how the brain is learning. And if you then apply neurostimulation, then that effect gets a little stronger. Mm -hmm. So it's basically increasing the neuroplasticity and it's making our whatever learning we have mm -hmm. happening a little faster, which means that if you use it systematically over time, then you will have stronger long-term effects on neuroplasticity uh, and on you know your cognitive flexibility your brain will be more uh, able to change because you um, you change it faster mm -hmm. so it's that's the the more sort of micro dosing uh, yeah i i actually like to think of um, electrical brain stimulation as sort of a form of um uh uh, psychedelic intervention so yeah you know you you can do it in uh small doses every day and that has a very positive effect on the way your brain works on mm -hmm. the long term mm -hmm. uh but you can also do you know uh sessions where you have a very strong we sort of mm -hmm. yeah have to sit down for half an hour afterwards and just say wow um mm -hmm. and the difference i guess between the psychedelic uh, experiences and the electrical ones is it's less intrusive so we we can't yet we're working on that that's another story but we can't yet fully control which of the two you'll get mm -hmm. so it's sort of sometimes you get a bigger experience sometimes it's just part of the microdosing logic um yeah but that's that has a lot to do with what your brain is naturally doing Right, right. I mean, and so I also study the science of flow states. And one of the things that I've really learned and through my own experience, but also through the research is that it's like we have these these knobs and levers, like you're talking about modulators. And we and that's why I love combining this device that I've received from you guys with microdosing. So my my flow is that I have my my microdosing morning routine that I absolutely love. It really just opens up my creative channel. I purposely implement practices that help me pull the different knobs and levers in my brain that help me mm -hmm. get into that that space. You know, I'm a content creator, I'm an entrepreneur. I need to show up with a very clear mind every day. And so after my morning routine and after my meditation practice and I've done my breath work and my movement. And once I sit down at the computer, that's when I put on the Play-Doh work device and I find it really effective. And when mm -hmm. I start my day, it 
depends. Like sometimes part of my morning microdosing routine is actually mind mapping. And so I'll put it on the, the create where I'm doing sort of higher level strategic visioning for either a program, uh, content I'm creating, you know, my business in general. And then sometimes I'm sitting down to write 10 pages of content. I'll put on the concentrate one and I notice it so much and you're right, it goes into hours of focus. And what's really interesting about the flow research is that flow follows focus. I'm, I'm curious how this device could potentially help us drop into these flow states. Yes, absolutely. It's, um, it sounds like you're using it in the optimal way, because um, I think it's very important to see uh, neurostimulation as one of a number of interventions and none of them work very well by themselves alone. So if you, you know, have had a bad morning, you're not focused, you've not been eating well, not been sleeping well, uh, you're unhappy, mm -hmm. then sitting down, putting on the headset and asking it to, to fix that is a lot to ask. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, seeing it more as a, a piece in healthy habits mm. Um, and, you know, preparing yourself for whatever type of work you want your brain to help you with mm -hmm. and then apply the headset when you've set yourself up well. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of the recommendations we really try to enforce to our users mm -hmm. is, you know, make sure to set yourself up well before mm -hmm. using the headset because if you go into it with sort of, uh, I have to do this, I don't want to do this, I'm not right. in place to do this, let's put the headset on, you know, there's a, there's a slim chance that, that it will have a mm -hmm. huge effect. I love that you said sleep earlier and, and that it's one piece of a larger habit. I have my aura ring too. I love this mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. And I tell people, you know, you can't expect to run low on sleep and then just show up and be able to do your best mental work. You just can't. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a very, it's a very important point. And I think we're, uh, we're all often accused for being sort of um, maybe a bit technologists in saying, you know, hey, we have a headset and you can buy it, you use an app and then you, mm -hmm. you know, you can control your brain. And that's, we really try to, to convey a, a richer message and say, no, our product is just piece of the puzzle and mm -hmm. uh, sleep, meditation, um, physical activity, uh, you know, sun, diet, all these other things are equally important. Mm -hmm. And without the rest, then our product will be very, uh, very lonely and very naked. Uh, so I think that's the first part. And when it comes to flow, uh, the, our understanding of flow states is that it's a very um, uh, sort of intangible concept mm -hmm. still. It's there's a lot of research on flow and it's the famous uh, Mitchell Shehail book Flow uh, from the 80s, which is a beautiful book. Um, but the I would say that the type of flow states that we are interested in are very hard to study. Uh, I use a, a, a HRV mapping myself, mm. uh, so same as the mm -hmm. ring, same technology. And I think there are measurable factors that can indicate a flow state. But I think the important thing for me and for us is uh, people would never be in doubt if they've been in flow. Mm -hmm. So for me, the best metric for flow states is asking, do you experience flow? Have you experienced flow? How often, you know, so to me, it's, it's one of those things that 
it's safer to actually ask people to self-report right. rather than uh, mm-hmm. trying to measure it because it's too there are too many factors in it. And you know, it's funny. It's actually uh, one of my favorite uh, cognitive measures is the the measure for arrogance. Mm. This is completely random. I just really love it. Um, so after years and years of psychologists trying to find a good way of measuring uh, uh, arrogance, they figured out that the best measure is self-reporting mm-hmm. because people who are super arrogant will, wouldn't see it as negative. Mm-hmm. So people would just say, you know, I'm a 10 of 10. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, anyways, so self-reporting uh, mm-hmm. should not be underestimated. And I think flow is one of the factors that people are very good at knowing. And if you've never been in flow, you would say, I'm not sure if I know what flow is. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you have had flow, you can say, you know, this is, I have my sexual flow. I have my work flow. I have my nature flow. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're experienced, you would also be able to, to be very detailed about it. Mm-hmm. And in our uh, internal research, we do um, self-reporting. Mm-hmm. So we've been doing, especially in the early days of our headsets, we would do a lot of pre-post measures. We would ask people, you know, how do you feel? What are you about to do? How well did that go before and after? And just sort of look across that. And I think one of the uh, biggest findings from that was a self-report to drop in stress, Mm -hmm. which I see as a very important part of being in a good flow state is feeling that I have less stress. I'm still doing the exact same thing as I did half an hour ago, but I feel different about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think the emphasis is that it's one tool amongst many and a applying all the tools that we have access to. Plant medicines for me are also a powerful tool and all the ways movement, you know, yoga practice, (laughs) working out, movement, you know, meditation (laughs) is such a powerful tool. And I love having this head device as, as a part of the mix for me. I definitely, I feel like it's really fun to, to be at the forefront of, of exploring my own mind in this way and how we can modulate it in different ways. And, so yeah, this just the whole conversation is so so fascinating, and I, I just really yeah. appreciate all the work that you're doing so much. Thanks, and likewise, I, I'm really I'm really looking forward to uh, to talk more, maybe off record about uh, the combination of our um, our device market dosing and systematic training over time, because I think that's such a powerful combination. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really interested in exploring this as much as I can. So I look forward to more conversations. And before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to share um, and and the website for people to to find the Plato Work device? Yeah. So the the company is called Plato Science. Mm -hmm. It's inspired by uh, Plato, of course, the philosopher, uh, and taking a scientific approach to improving our minds. So platoscience.com, the product is called Plato Work, and we're launching a gaming version in April mm. for pre-sale. So we're not going to ship it until probably around mid-year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think if you're interested in more of our work, uh, send me an email. I think I'm, I'm uh, still able to answer requests from people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really like hearing from mm-hmm. uh people with similar projects just as you reach out to me. So to anyone listening who who have something in mind, just 
drop me an email. I'll add your email in the show notes and on the website page. So Perfect. such a pleasure dropping in with you, Balder. I really, really appreciate you so much. Thanks. And likewise, thanks for having me. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with me, please reach out through my website, livefreelauraD.com, or send me a message through Instagram at livefreelauraD. And I'm finally making my way over to Clubhouse. If you'd love to connect on that platform, I'm going under the handle, you guessed it, livefreelauraD. And if you happen to know any musicians that might want to get featured on this podcast, please send me an email. If you haven't yet received my microdosing course or my playlist for psychedelic journeys and beyond, you can also swipe those on the freebies tab at livefreelauraD.com. I'm going to be leaving you with this song that I just love so much called Let It Be Alive. And it's a compilation by Paul Isaac, Tubby Love, and Anna Sorrento. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Once again, my name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time. Let it be alive, let it be alive. Yeah. Spirit of your faith will always rise. Let it be alive, let it be alive. Yeah. Spirit of your faith will always rise. Life is motivation, healing from the sun. Life is motivation, healing from the sun. Life is motivation, healing from the sun. Love planted seeds inside the hearts of everyone under the sun. Love planted seeds inside the hearts of everyone. Musical medicine, musical medicine. Your faith will always rise.
will always rise Whatever is coming through Let it come through you Whatever is coming through Let it come through you Whatever is coming